0: Well this is a a dazzling passage. Did you hear it? Could you hear the glitter on the page here? It's full of glory, isn't it? Did you hear how many times glory or a word related to glory appeared in those verses 7 to 18? Thirteen times in the original, a form of the word glory appearing in our passage. It's a passage about glory. But what is it all about? What kind of glory? That's what we want to find out this evening. When we think about glory, we think about something that we can see, don't we? We think of radiance, we think of light, we think of power. In fact, most often, I think we tend to have a concept of the sun. The sun shining in the sky for us is an image of glory that we can begin to grasp in our minds. And the dazzling power of the sun is a good one to convey the glory that we see in this passage. That dazzling power was brought home to me uh, in a big way when we lived in Australia. Now, you get some wonderful sunshine in this country, but it's nothing like the Australian sun. I'm sorry. If you've ever been down under, you know that the sun blazes down upon you there. And so the Australians are very good about issuing reminders and warnings to use sunscreen. So our boys who were very small, four and five years old at the time we lived there, would always go out with sun hats. Kathy was very diligent and she'd lather them up with sunscreen. They hated getting it on their faces, but they had to have it on when they went out. We tried to be very diligent to protect against the power of the sun. And one time we went to the beach for the day with some friends. And we lathered up all the kids, six of them at the time, I think. And we lathered up ourselves. But I forgot, in all of that sunscreening, one important part. I forgot to put anything on the tops of my feet. I don't know if you've ever done this, but after an afternoon in the Australian sun, do you know what happened to my feet? They were absolutely burnt to a crisp. I went home that evening, and I could tell what had happened. They were already red. They were already it's very painful, so I put them in an ice bath, but for the next week I had to deal with my foolishness at not having guarded against the blazing glory of the sun on the beach that day. Because the sun is an image of glory for us, isn't it? The sun can transform. If you if you've done the right kind of sunscreening, you can get a glorious tan. You can be you can be transformed into the image of a a bronzed Australian at the beach, but if you do what I did, then you turn into a red person who's in pain and hiding in the ice bath. The sun has power to transform either for good, but also in a dangerous kind of way. And that gets us towards what this passage is about this evening. This passage is all about glory. It's about the greater glory of the gospel. In fact, here's the idea that I want us to take away from this evening, from this passage. The greater glory of the gospel transforms sinners. The greater glory of the gospel transforms sinners. And you can see, probably, as you look at the text before you from verse 7 on, that this passage falls into two sections. First of all, in verses 7 to 11, we see that the gospel glory is greater glory than that of the Mosaic law. So that's the first thing we're going to have to look at. But secondly, in verses 12 to 18, we see that this greater glory of the gospel, at the heart of that greater glory, is the work of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. That's where the power comes from. So we're going to have a look at those two sections each in turn so that we can understand how this works, that the greater glory of the gospel transforms sinners. So first of all, let's look at verses 7 to 11 and see how it is that the gospel glory is greater than the glory that the law had. Do you see in verses 7 and 8 that it's actually one long rhetorical question? You see the question mark there at the end of verse 8? Let's read those again. Verse 7, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. There's the first half. Moses had some glory, didn't he? But then verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Do you see the kind of argument Paul's making? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. There was glory with Moses. How much more glory is there with the Lord Jesus in the gospel fully revealed? That's the kind of argument that he's making. And everything here in verses 7 to 11 is trying to unpack that greater glory of the gospel by comparison and contrast between these two revelations of glory. So there are two ministries. Do you see the language Paul uses there in verse 7? There's a ministry of death. And then in verse 8, there's a ministry of the Spirit. There are two ministries... Because there are two covenants. So in the section just before our passage this evening, you can see it there in verse 6 most easily, Paul says he is a minister of the new covenant. Verse 6, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul is contrasting his new covenant ministry with the old covenant ministry of Moses. Two ministries because two covenants. But both covenants and both ministries were full of glory, Paul says. It's not that one was inglorious and the other glorious. Both were full of glory, but one has the greater glory. So the old covenant related to Moses, the new covenant related by Paul here in this passage, very importantly, to the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit, he tells us in verse 8. Well, let's look at how Paul contrasts the glories of these two ministries as we run through verses 7 to 11. In verse 7, as we've seen already, the Mosaic ministry of the Old Covenant is referred to as a ministry of death. That is, it's a ministry whose glory resulted in death unless the Lord did something miraculous. It's a ministry that was characterized By death, Paul says. It's a ministry, verse 7, that was carved in letters on stone. And as we heard in the Old Testament passage from uh, chapter 34 of Exodus, literally those were words carved on the tablets of stone that Moses then came down from the mountain into the camp and brought to the people of Israel. This Old Covenant ministry, a ministry of death, carved with letters on stone. But, verse 8, we're told that the ministry of the Spirit, that is, the ministry brought to us by the Spirit and the ministry empowered by the Spirit, is a ministry that has greater glory. And we're told in verse 6, as we look back, it's a ministry that brings not death, a ministry that gives life. So two different ministries, a ministry of death, a ministry of life, verses 7 and 8. And then in verse 9, Paul goes on, to unpack this, to explain this even more, doesn't he? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, so the the Mosaic Covenant, that old covenant administration, that ministry, is a ministry that condemns, Paul said. It calls out sin, it brings sin to the surface, and it condemns sin in the sinner. If that ministry was glorious, then... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The new covenant ministry, that ministry related to the Spirit, is a ministry of righteousness, Paul says in verse 9. It's a ministry of, we could also translate this, justification, of a declaration that you are righteous in Christ. So ministry of death, ministry of life, ministry of condemnation, ministry of righteousness or justification. Verse 10, indeed, in that case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. The glory of the Mosaic administration is a glory that has not continued. It now has no glory because, verse 10, of the glory that surpasses it, the greater glory of the gospel in the new covenant ministry. Verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, again, the old covenant brought to an end. It had a glory, but that glory has come to an end. Much more will what is permanent have glory. The glory of the new covenant will never end. It's permanent. Both covenants, both ministries, full of glory, But the gospel, the new covenant ministry, a far greater glory. That's Paul's point in verses 7 to 11. It's a point that he wants us to understand, that there is a greater glory in the new covenant ministry. And that greater that greater glory relates in a very important way, as we've already alluded to, to what's going on in that passage that Gabriel read for us in Exodus chapter 34. So you might just keep a finger in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but turn back to Exodus chapter 34. That's on page 74 in the Church Bibles. Because we want to know, why does Paul allude to this passage in such detail just here? And how does it help us understand his point? In Exodus 34, we see that Moses goes up on the mountain. Now, what's happened in the chapters beforehand? Some of you will remember this, that Moses has already been up on the mountain. But the first time he went up on the mountain, the people, the people went crazy down below, didn't they? Because in Exodus chapter 32, Aaron and the people in the camp made a golden calf. And they tried to worship Yahweh through this golden image in direct contravention of the second commandment that God had already spoken to them back in Exodus chapter 19 as they gathered around Mount Sinai. They had already broken God's law by worshiping God through this image, this golden calf. And so when Moses came down from the mountain, the tablets were broken. And God declared through Exodus chapter 32 and 33 that he was no longer going to go with this people and lead them into the promised land. And Moses then in chapter 33 falls before the Lord and he intercedes before the Lord on behalf of Israel. And he says, Lord, don't abandon your people. Yes, they're sinful, but remember your promises. Remember your promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Think how it would look if you this people out of Egypt only to abandon them now in the wilderness. For your own glory, Lord, don't abandon this people. And so the Lord relents. And in chapter 34, Moses again goes up on the mountain and he enters there in verse 5 into the cloud. That is, the glory cloud the visible cloud of glory that had descended onto the top of Mount Sinai. Moses enters that cloud. And it's in that cloud that he then sees the Lord face to face, we're told. And what's the result? Well, by the end of the chapter... We're told that not only has God's law been re-inscribed on tablets of stone for Moses to take down and to again remind the people of the covenant relationship that Yahweh has established with them, but we're also told in verse 29, do you see it, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. He was radiant with reflected glory from having seen the Lord and been in the presence of the glory cloud up on top of the mountain. In fact, his skin was so glorious that he would speak with unveiled face when he spoke to the people. And when he finished speaking, he would put a veil on his face. It seemed so as not to make them afraid, not to remind them of the judgment that they deserved because of their sin. Moses would veil his face. The veil was a protection from a glory that they were not able to endure and a reminder, the veil a reminder of the barrier Between Israel, under the law, still separated to a degree from the full and abiding glory presence of God. It would come to dwell in the tabernacle amongst them, but only there in the Holy of Holies, only where that high priest could go one day each year. That full glory still separated from the people in a significant way. And this is what Paul's alluding to. This is the glory of the Mosaic Covenant but it also then sets in great contrast the greater glory of the new covenant of which Paul himself is a minister in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So turn back there, if you would, with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we want to think about this just for a moment in this first section. And we want to think about it with the help of verse 9 in particular. For if there was glory, ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, must far exceed it in glory. I want to ask you this evening, where do you stand with respect to God's glory? If you are called into the glorious presence of God, where do you stand? Yes, it's a dazzling kind of glory, but as we think back to what happened to me that day on the beach, is it the kind of glory that would burn you to a crisp? As a sinner who deserves judgment, or is it the kind of glory in which you can bask, in which you can rest, in which you can delight and be transformed? Because the Lord is a glorious God, but He is not glorious to sinners who are not standing covered by the righteousness of Christ. And so I would ask you again this evening, where do you stand in relation to the glory of God? Are you someone, perhaps, who's here this evening, who finds yourself too often and too easily dazzled by other things, by other promises of glory in this life? Maybe for you, that's glory in your work, in your job. Maybe that's you seeking glory through a qualification. Maybe you're here studying in London for a year or two years or more, and you're working hard for that qualification. Or maybe you are not convinced of the glory of the Lord Jesus as that only mediator, the only Savior, the only way to find life with God. Or maybe for you, it's a glory that you look for in order to transform yourself, the glory of greater discipline in your own life. If only you could be more disciplined. And if only you could work harder at living in the way that you think you ought to live. You could clean yourself up. You could be glorious by working hard to be that way. I don't know if any of those describe you this evening. But if that's you, then I have to tell you, along with Paul, you will not find glory along any of those routes. In fact, what you will find is only the same kind of ministry of condemnation held out by the law that Paul refers to here. Because the glory light of God is only a light that judges you unless you take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way to enjoy the full glorious presence of God other than to hide and take refuge in Christ perhaps you're here this night and you are feeling the weight of your sin maybe the ministry of condemnation for you calls forth thoughts of this past week this past month ways that you know you have sinned and broken God's law maybe you're a believer you've trusted in Christ and yet you have Strayed from Christ. You have strayed from what you know God commands and you've fallen into sin and you feel the weight of condemnation because you know God is holy and you know He's glorious and you know you don't deserve to stand in that glory presence. Well if that's you tonight, then Paul has the same message for you, that the ministry of the Spirit is a ministry of life, and it's a ministry, verse 9, of righteousness and justification. That the only way, the only way to find rest and peace and to bask in the glory presence of God is to cling by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. How how long ago was it? Maybe, Maybe two months ago now, back in August, We might have read about the the full solar eclipse. Did any of you follow this? I know one of my co-workers at college in August traveled to the United States just to take a holiday in order to... Get on the path of the eclipse so that she and her family could glimpse that. And she told me about the preparations, and she told me about how she had to have the special special eyewear that, you know, that protects your vision so that as you look at the sun, you're not permanently damaged in your sight. Evidently, we also saw in the news there were some notable figures who forgot that lesson and who gazed up at the sun for a moment without protection. Well, what does that do? It burns your retinas. It's a glorious sun that burns and that, and that causes pain and damage unless you have the right glasses at which, through which to gaze upon it. Brothers and sisters, this evening I want you to know that the new covenant ministry held out to us in this passage is a ministry of life and righteousness in the Lord Jesus. It's in Him and in Him alone that we can find refuge and draw near to the God of glory who speaks to us through this passage. And so if that's you this evening needing to hear that invitation to come near, to draw near, to find that declaration of justified before God, then I pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in your heart to help you to hear that. It's a ministry of righteousness that far exceeds the ministry of condemnation in its glory. Turn to Christ, we are invited by this text. Turn to Christ, who's held out to us in this glorious gospel. But there's a second section, isn't there? It's not only that the gospel has a greater glory, the new covenant, a greater glory than that of Moses. In verses 12 to 18, we are shown right into the heart of how this works. And we're shown that this glorious gospel transforms sinners by the Spirit's presence and power. Have a look at verse twelve. Do you see the inference that Paul makes? Having established the greater glory of the gospel in verses seven to eleven, he says, Since we have such a hope, this is a great hope. It's a great and glorious hope to know the glory of the gospel. Since we have that hope, we are very bold. We are very open. We're very bold, Paul says. Not like Moses, verse 13, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But we have a new covenant gospel boldness, Paul says. And in the first case, he's speaking of himself and his own ministry. Because some of you will know that in the context of 2 Corinthians, Paul is under attack. He has been criticized. He's been attacked for his gospel for his own persona, the way he looks, the way he carries himself, the way he speaks. He's been accused of being incompetent as a gospel minister. He's been accused of being underhanded. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 4, he's going to go back and deny those charges yet again. But one of the ways he answers those charges is by disappearing, as it were, in this text. You see how Paul doesn't talk about himself here. There are are a few we's here. This This is the main one in verse 12. But he doesn't say I. He doesn't name himself. Instead, he steps into the background and he says, you know what? My competence and the power of my gospel and the glory of my gospel comes from God in Christ by the work of the Spirit. And that's his answer as he begins to answer his critics And he's going to go on answering them for the next several chapters, highlighting the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus. So in verse 12, he says for himself, in the first place, he is very bold, not because of his own confidence in himself, his own merits, his own abilities and gifts, but because he knows the Lord of glory whose gospel he proclaims. And just think for a moment, what happened to Paul in Acts chapter 9 as he was then called Saul, wasn't he? And he's traveling along the road to Damascus out to persecute the church of the Lord Jesus because he's so convinced that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. He couldn't be the Messiah. And what happens to Paul on the Damascus road? He's transformed by glory, is he not? He's knocked clean off of his donkey because the Lord Jesus, the risen and glorious Lord Jesus, appears to him and changes him and reaches out and transforms Saul into a new man who will now be called Paul and who has great confidence, not in himself, because he knows his own sinfulness, but great confidence in the one who has transformed him. And who can transform men and women and boys and girls whenever he wants to reach out and change their hearts. And that's what Paul is so confident about in this section of 2 Corinthians 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, Paul says. And we don't veil our face. We don't veil anything. We don't veil the gospel because we want its full power to shine out with all the wattage behind it, so that it will transform others just like it has transformed us, Paul says. That's the inference he makes there in verse 12 and verse 13. And then in verses 14 to 16, he again gives us grounds for this hope, this boldness that he has, because he shows us how it is, That this glory can overcome anything that stands in its way. Verse 14, he points out that the Israelites, under that old covenant ministry of Moses, had hardened minds. We usually think of hard hearts, don't we, in the way the Bible talks about things. But here, we're told that minds can be hardened as well. And it's not just Jews under the Old Covenant. This is true of anyone who has not turned to the Lord Jesus, as we'll see in this text. Anyone who does not believe, who has not put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, has a hardened mind. So contrary to the way lots of people in the culture like to talk about themselves as being very open-minded, actually, those who do not trust in Christ have hardened, fossilized, rigid minds that cannot understand the truth. But, Paul says, the glory of the gospel and the power of the Spirit can break right through the hardest mind, can truly open up the most closed mind that there is. That's the power of the gospel fueled by the Spirit. Verse 14. And then verse 15, Paul says it's not only their minds that are a problem, but those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus have a problem in their hearts. Their hearts are veiled. It's not the gospel that's veiled, the glory of God revealed in Christ. It's darkened, veiled, obscured hearts. It's not just an intellectual problem that people need to have overcome before they can turn to the Lord. It's also a problem of the heart of the very will and affections. It's a moral problem that has to be overcome. It is darkened hearts, but Paul says that is also no problem in light of the glory of the gospel. The Holy Spirit can shine his light into the darkest, most veiled heart that's out there. And how does this all happen? Well, we're told how it happens, aren't we, in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Do you hear that language of turning? Do you know what you know what the biblical concept for that language of turning is? It's the concept of repentance. Repentance. What is repentance? Well, our standards tell us that repentance is a saving grace. It's exactly what this chapter tells us. It's worked savingly by the power of the Holy Spirit. In such a way that we come to know our sin, and we come to see our sin for what it is, and we come to hate and despise our sin, and to acknowledge the fact that we cannot free ourselves from it. And that's the first step of repentance. That's the first step of turning, is seeing the hideousness of sin, and how it has its claws sunk so deeply into us, and wanting desperately Turn away from it. To free ourselves from it. That's the first step to biblical repentance. And then it becomes turning away from and turning towards. Turning towards the Lord Jesus and apprehending, holding on to him, grasping him by faith so that we might have new life. That is the gospel grace of repentance. And that's what Paul says is part of the glory of this new covenant ministry. It's by means of repentance, of turning away from our sin and turning towards the Lord Jesus that we can have life in Jesus and that we can be transformed by the glory of the gospel. And finally, in verses 17 and 18, Paul highlights some of the spectacular results of this greater glory of the gospel worked in sinners by the power of the Spirit. Verse 17 tells us that the Lord is the Spirit. That same glory presence which descended upon the mountain in Exodus. That's the Lord. That's the glory presence and the Spirit that we're taught. Only now, that's the same Lord who comes to every sinner in the Gospel. Not just to Moses up on the mountain while the rest of us wait down below. But that glorious Lord comes to you, comes to me, in the free offer of the gospel. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, verse 17 tells us, there is freedom. What kind of freedom, we ask? Well, freedom from sin, freedom from the condemnation of the law, that ministry of condemnation under the Mosaic Covenant. Freedom from those things, but also freedom for the things that characterize the new life of a Christian. Freedom for adoption as sons and daughters. Freedom for all the privileges that we can enjoy once we turn to Christ by faith. Freedom now to obey the law, not in order to merit God's favor, but out of grateful hearts. Freedom to follow the law as a guide to holiness and not in order to save ourselves. This is the gospel glory that the Spirit brings to us in regeneration. It's the glory of new birth. The Spirit is the one who enables us to be reborn. In fact, it's the glory of the new creation that dawns even in the midst of this old creation. It's something we can't see. It's not a dawn that we see with the eyes of our flesh, but it is the dawning in the heart of each believer of the power and glory of the new creation in the Spirit. And verse 18 concludes our passage this evening. We all then, with unveiled face, that is, everyone who turns to the Lord Jesus, with unveiled face, beholding, and we might add here, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. There's not only the glory of gospel repentance, the glory of gospel regeneration, there's also the glory of gospel transformation and sanctification that is ongoing in the life of the believer. Paul says, now, once we've turned to Christ and the veil's been torn away, the darkness has been illuminated, now we can see Christ reflected in the gospel And we can be transformed by that gospel more and more into his image. In fact, I think Paul even has in mind here in verse 18 when he says, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, his own self, his own person. Why do I say that? Well, if you read on, and I invite you to this week to read on in chapters 4 and 5, Paul talks about how even as he is beaten down, even as he is pursued, even as his own body is broken and misshapen, and he is the ugliest kind of messenger you could think of. He's not at all a good-looking celebrity kind of preacher. Even in all of that, even in fact, because of that, as he becomes a cruciform, that is a cross-shaped, Jesus-shaped messenger of the gospel, he in his own person reflects the glory of the gospel. As he proclaims it. So it's not just his words, it's his life of faithfulness as he is conformed even physically more and more into the image of the suffering savior who is now glorified. And that should give us pause for thought. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So as we, as we consider the gospel of the crucified and risen one, we are being transformed more and more into the same image. This is the image that Paul goes on to talk about in chapter 4, verse 4 and verse 6. The image of the Lord Jesus, the risen, crucified Lord Lord Jesus. It's into his image that we're being shaped, molded. Does that happen? It happens by means of the law of reflection. That the thing that we look at, and the thing that is glorious and reflected to us, begins to transform us into its own image. We know how this works, don't we? If you have children or you've had children, you know that when our children look at their favorite sports figure, their favorite singer, their favorite fashion icon, what happens? that slowly over time, what do they begin to do? They begin to be conformed into the image of that person whose glory they look at and behold. And the same is true for all of us. There is a way that we have been designed such that we become very much like what it is that we worship. And brothers and sisters, this is where Paul ends tonight for us. That as we worship the Lord Jesus, as we behold his glory in the gospel we will be conformed more and more into his likeness. Do you want to grow to be more Christ-like? Do you want to grow to be more like the Lord Jesus? Do you want to understand more and more what it means to be conformed to his sufferings and comforted by his resurrection? Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. And how does that happen? It happens as we gaze at the gospel. So here's the final challenge for us this evening as we conclude. We need to be gazing more deeply into the glory of the gospel. We can do that in a variety of ways, but one wonderful way is this week simply to take up the gospel and read it, to read it, to read these chapters, chapters 3 and 4 and 5 of 2nd Corinthians, and another chapter in Paul which has many of the same echoes. Maybe you might read Romans chapter 8 this week. And as you do so, do so prayerfully, asking the Lord, asking the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of glory, to open your mind, to open your heart, and to help you more deeply to understand and to appreciate and to be transformed by the glory of the gospel. Maybe some of you would be interested as well in picking up a book like that by John Owen called The Glory of Christ. There's an abridged version which is a little more manageable for for those of us who are mortals that don't read Owen in the uh, in the complete old by banner of truth the glory of Christ by John Owen a wonderful place to go if you want to more deeply immerse yourself in this glorious new covenant ministry and be transformed as you meditate on the glory of the gospel in Christ but we have to be praying, don't we? We've got to be praying. We've got to ask the Lord by his spirit to help us to grow in prayer, to prayerfully meditate on these truths and to cling to them and be transformed by them and to be stirred up to worship and gratitude as well. But there's another point. Not only do we need to gaze more deeply upon the gospel this week, we also, like Paul, need to take our stand more boldly on this glorious gospel more confidently, more openly, not with veiled face, not veiling the gospel, but an open and bold proclamation and lifestyle that mirrors the glory of this gospel to those around us, those in our workplace, those with whom we study, those in our families, pointing others to the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus. By our words and by our own growth, from glory to glory in holiness. Later on in chapter 8, Paul's going to refer to Titus and some others who are brothers taking up a collection, carrying money from Corinth back to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he's going to call them, those brothers who are doing that service, the glory of Christ. That as they serve one another in love, they are the glory of Christ. What an opportunity we have as brothers and sisters in this congregation to serve one another and to reflect God's glory in the gospel to one another as well. Let's take our stand then with confidence on the glory of this gospel because we know that it is the Lord himself who is the spirit that is at work with transforming power, power even greater than that shining down upon us from the sun working in hearts and minds to bring people to new life and to keep those of us who are in Christ that we might grow from glory to glory. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do these things in us by your glory spirit even in the coming week. In Christ's name, amen.